0: On today's show, a lot of heartburn over the proposed food tax increase. And the question, censure over impeachment? Representative Ben McAdams is on the censure train. Tune in Monday through Thursday, 9 to 11, for Dave and Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. I'm Jess Larson. This is part two of our interview with Glenn Kelman?
1: Well, there's a huge migration from coastal cities inland. Uh, It's almost a reversal of the classic American tale about the wrath of grapes, um, or the grapes of wrath. I said it in reverse, which is sort of ironic because uh, that's the process we're talking about now, where people are leaving really expensive cities because wages have not kept up with home prices.
0: Uh, Redfin CEO. um, Glenn, in part one, we talked a lot about humility and some other things. A uh, Question I'm really interested in is um, patience. You know, running the business for 10 years before IPOing, and oh. um, especially in the kind of microwave culture we have today, sometimes where it feels like people want <laughs> stuff as long as it's fast, cheap, and easy, right? Yeah. Um, spending you know, spending a solid decade like that in the in that startup phase is not something a lot of people necessarily stick with. It seems like these days. Can you talk about, you know, patience as a virtue, patience as a competitive Uh. advantage, anything like that?
1: every overnight success is 10 years in the making. <laughs> and I think that sometimes people just don't realize that cause they only see the cake when it comes out of the oven. My good fortune was that I started Plumtree, uh, an enterprise software company that went public in 2002 and then had a period of about 12 months where I wasn't working in an office and I was so blue in between plum tree and Redfin. I just didn't know what to do with myself. I missed the team and the mission, and I didn't have anywhere to go, and I didn't know whether to shave or even get dressed, and people assumed that I was kite surfing in Brazil or learning Japanese, but really, I had found my passion, and all I wanted to do was get back in the game uh, to find a way uh, to be at my best, and so now, I tell myself about this job that they shoot horses, don't they? And what that means is that one day I'll be too old. I won't be entrepreneurial. I won't have the ideas or the energy and someone else should run Redfin. And that'll be a sad day for me. So I used to think about when will this end uh, when I started Plumtree with some friends. And now I think about how can I keep going? But the key to that is you've got to do something worthwhile. If we were making (laughs) software for dentist offices or selling chocolate chip cookies over the web, well, I couldn't be done with that fast enough. But helping people whose lives are in transition, figuring out a third of the U.S. economy and making it more efficient, I decided that's actually worth a good chunk of my life. And at the end of that run, I won't feel like it was time poorly spent. And what I've noticed is that People always want what they don't have. When you're this rinky-dink little startup, you can't wait to get all grown up one day. And then uh, after you go public, people are nostalgic for the good old days and they forget that we were worried we weren't going to make payroll and that we were snappy with each other because it was so much stress. And I just tried to enjoy the moment uh, because I think Fed's better than ever. And it's just human nature not to see that.
0: You know, it's interesting... um... How, as humans, we actually get the choice to look at it the way we want to look at it. But if you don't intentionally choose, the default view is typically not the one you're talking about, right?
1: Yeah, it's either things are going to get better or they were so great last year. And I'm lucky because I was here last year or the year before that. And when one Redfin old timer says to another, Remember the good old days? I'll say, Oh, are you talking about the great financial crisis of 2008 or 2010? when 42VC said no or 2011 when we were all about to kill each other. I mean, those were tough times too. And uh, they just get edited out. They get edited out in the official narrative, but also in your brain. Yeah, It's always hard. And if it weren't hard, you'd be bored.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, l- let me ask you this because startups are hard and um, and also exhilarating. When you think about you know, because I understand Stanford Technology Group was Sequoia backed, right? And then you yeah. went to Plumtree in this. What do you feel like the advantages are um, going into Redfin, having this, your, your experience from Stanford Technology Group and Plumtree?
1: Well, the first advantage is that I'd seen the Shiitake mushrooms hit the fan. At Plumtree, it was a dot com boom until it was a bust. We went into a board meeting where everyone had been telling us to hire more and grow faster. And all of a sudden it was, what were you thinking? And that prepared me for the ups and downs of Redfin. We went through this great financial crisis. We laid off 20% of the workforce. Everyone wrote us off but I'd lived to tell the tale before and I was able to stand up in front of the company and say, look, I did a layoff like this before and that company went public and I'm not guaranteeing that'll happen this time, but I know it can happen. And I think what's more important is that you have to have a narrative that's not just about making money. There has to be a sense of purpose in your life. They've studied families and it turns out that families that have a narrative of of rising uh, and families that have a narrative of decline Neither of those do as well as families that have a narrative of ups and downs. This family has been through a hard time. Your dad delivered flowers. Your mom cleaned hotel rooms. um, But we've always stuck together and we've always done what we believed was right, those families raised the best kids. And so, if your only narrative running a startup is, we're gonna kill it, well, the day you don't is the day everybody stops listening to you. But if your narrative is that, we're fundamentally doing a good thing, and sometimes the market's gonna reward that, and sometimes we're gonna screw it up, we're gonna keep doing a good thing. Because usually when people work hard to do a good thing, especially if they're building technology to do that, society rewards Towards that. And you just have to keep working hard at it. And what drives me crazy about a lot of these narratives is they have this model that I don't think actually fits reality. I don't know if you have ever seen Die Hard, but they're drilling through this safe at Nakatomi Plaza, and there's six or seven walls, but the last shield is electromagnetic, and they don't know how they're gonna get through that shield. And then the FBI cuts the power to the entire neighborhood. And you see these guys running into the vault, grabbing bags of money and throwing it around. And I always felt like I understood the drilling part, but not the electromagnetic part, that there would be this magic moment where we would go from being zeros to heroes, but instead it happens so gradually that I still don't feel like a hero, and I don't quite feel like a zero, I just kept drilling, and, um, and I just kept waiting for the fairy dust to be sprinkled on us that made us cool, and instead, um, I think it's just a lot of hard work.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, um- Thinking about that hard work and paying attention and having um, an opinion about things, um, I'm interested in your thoughts on the real estate market. You guys have such unique data yeah. because, of, because of the nature of your, your approach to things. As you think about the next couple of years, what, what do you think maybe not everybody is seeing?
1: Well, there's a huge migration from coastal cities inland. Uh, it's almost a reversal of the classic American tale about the wrath of grapes, Um, or the Grapes of Wrath, I said it in reverse, (laughs) which is sort of ironic, because uh, that's the process we're talking about now, where people are leaving really expensive cities, because wages have not kept up with home prices, uh, because of tax reform, and for other reasons. And they're moving to America's forgotten places, which I think is really good, because the last... Major election was really a referendum on how there's two Americas, and there shouldn't be. There shouldn't be this incredibly opulent coast in um, this interior wasteland. Um, I'm trying to remember the word our president used. No, carnage was the word that he used. I know that's strong, but there shouldn't be two economies. There should be one when we have airplanes and internet connections and highways and trains. Uh, talent should go uh, to the place where people can afford to live. And so I think that's been the fundamental narrative. And then the second part of it is that homeownership rates are going to decline in America. That's been a long term trend. And it's because there isn't a broad consensus. And it's not just the mortgage interest deduction, which is a fairly regressive tax break. It's Cities deciding that they want to work with developers and building transit and roads. Um, The compact that we had at the end of World War II to house this greatest generation of people who fought uh, in these world wars just doesn't exist right now. There's so much student debt and so little new construction. And so much suspicion of developers that I think we should just expect that home ownership rates are going to decline. In a way, it's a perverse consequence of sort of Obama era tax reforms, which were or uh, credit reforms, which were very well intentioned, uh, but which just. Prevented um, about half of America from getting the credit to buy a house uh, without replacing that with some other kind of subsidy because there just wasn't the political will between the left and the right to do that. So I think you won't see as many people um, investing in the American dream.
0: Interesting. Um, do you see that relating or having effect on the maybe the the different investor grade real estate assets, whether that's you know commercial or industrial or multifamily?
1: Yeah, well, I think we're going to have this landlord nation where if more people are going to rent, fewer people are going to own. Uh, you're going to see a concentration of, of home ownership. Um, and there are Wall Street firms that are buying up Main Street. Uh, there are people doing that at a local level with Airbnb, uh, where they buy three or four places and rent them out. Uh, So my guess is that you're going to see more people becoming uh, tiny property barons. Um, (laughs) And uh, that's a good opportunity for those folks. Um, But I'd prefer to see everyone own his own home, chicken in every pot, things like that.
0: Yeah. Well, listen, um, thanks for your time here. Um, To wrap up, maybe tell us us a, a book that's had a big influence on you or a book you'd recommend for the rest of us.
1: Interesting question. Well, the last two books that have really affected me are not business books. I really like Pachinko, um, which is a novel about Koreans living in Japan over many generations. And in general, I recommend novels because I think most people know the basics of running a business, spend less. Uh, than your revenues but what we really need to do is be able to imagine what it's like to be different people on our teams to be different types of customers and novels help me do that Um, and then I read The Emperor of All Maladies a biography of cancer which won a Pulitzer Prize it's this amazing account of how we cured cancer. And what I took from that was for the longest time, we cut bigger and bigger hunks out of people thinking that had to be the right way to do it. And it was because we believed in an idea so much, we ignored the data um, that really large mastectomies and other types of, of surgeries uh, didn't work as well as a combination of a lot of little different things, chemotherapy and radiation and surgery together. And it's My distrust of ideology um, and this idea that the data will tell you something if you listen to it, um, that has humbled me in the way we talked about at the outset of the show.
0: I love it. Well, thanks again for making time for us. Thank you. Take care. You bet. Well, that's it for the episode. One other thing I wanted to tell you about. If you remember the guys from Convoy uh, in episodes back, Ken Free and Trent Mano, I went on one of their CEO trips to New York and I met a guy named Brent Thompson. Very successful entrepreneur. He was former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh, company now, I think three or four hundred million dollars. Anyways, he uh, he started a new company called blip billboards.com. I'm super stoked they're a sponsor now. But I, I remember a year and some ago when I met him, I thought it was genius. Instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboard um, for thousands of dollars, you can buy eight seconds at a time for like 10 or 20 cents. You pick what billboard you want it on what time of day you want it to run. And it just puts so much power in the hands of of marketers and CEOs who want to try something and see if it works. You can buy as many or as few as you want, change it as many times as you want. Uh, I think now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors. We're pretty excited about it. Hope you check out blipbillboards.com. Thanks.